TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm Mihir. And I'm Kathleen. Kathleen McGinn. So great to have you. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Kathleen is a dear colleague of ours at Harvard Business School. Mm -hmm. For our listeners to get to know you a little bit, tell us what you're working on, a project that you're excited about. So I study gender and employment, and I have a big project that looks back into all of the archives of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post, everything that's been written since the passage of the Equal Pay Act in 1963. Oh, my God. It took us a while to get the data. (laughs) (laughs) And we're looking at all the articles that have anything to do about women and employment. Hmm. And the reason we're doing this is because after decades of shrinking gender gaps in every dimension, around 2000, everything got stuck. And uh we're now actually starting to see some increasing gaps again. And so the question is, why? And there's lots and lots of research on this, but we really wanted to go back and try to understand the social discourse. What's happened in the discussions around women's employment that have led us to this place we're in. Super interesting. That sounds like a great project. Fascinating. So what do we got for topics today? Felix, what do you got? I would like to talk about retirement. Not my retirement. No, no. The answer is is no. You can't retire. That's it. No, I mean retirement in general. (laughs) When we talk about retirement, it's so dominated by financial concerns. And that, I think, has deep implications for how we think about retirement and how retirement opportunities will change over time. And I'm curious to get your take on it. Good. As long as you're not retiring, I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) Not in the middle of the show, anyway. (laughs) Kathleen, what did you bring? I wanted to talk about gratitude. One of the things we are hearing over and over from the people we're talking with over the pandemic and since is how grateful they are for some of the things that their employers have done. Hmm. And the same thing is true at home. People talk about how much they appreciate in a totally new way Hmm. what their partner does at work and how their partner interacts with their kids. 
And we're seeing some really interesting benefits and costs of gratitude in workplaces and households. So I thought that'd be fun to talk about with you, too. Wow, fascinating. By the way, have I mentioned that? Kathleen, thank you for showing up today. Well, thank you. I'm grateful you invited me. (laughs) Okay, Felix, retirement, not for you, but in society. What's on your mind? So you probably saw the enormous reaction in France to plans to increase the retirement age. Yeah. It got me thinking a little bit about retirement and the right system around retirement more generally. When I think of markets, I mostly think markets are here to give people the kinds of things that they would like to consume. And then very similar The democratic system exists because it's a great way to deliver the kinds of things that people would like to have. And that's interesting in the context of retirement because we know what people want. People want earlier retirement. The data are very clear, in particular in the U.S., where early retirement is quite expensive because you forgo a substantial fraction of the benefits. In the United States, about one-third of those who can retire at 63 at a cost of as much as 30% of the retirement benefits. Mm -hmm. And so there is this question, why is it that the financing constraints completely dominate how we think about retirement. In a way, it's very surprising. Think about a city that all of a sudden becomes popular among families and many more families with kids move to the city. It's not as though anyone would say, oh, wow, our school budget is fixed. Now that we have many more kids, we either have a choice of maybe we don't educate them as many years as we intended to, or we shorten classes, or no one would have that conversation. But somehow, when it comes to retirement, we say, well, there's the Social Security Fund, and it looks like we might be running out. And as a result, we have to do something that is the exact opposite of what most people want. I wanted to get your take on this. Why do we see this inability to give people what they want? And why is it that financing constraints dominate the conversation to the extent that they do? Well, financial considerations dominate, Felix, because finance dominates, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you're just so predictable. (laughs) I know, I know. Look, I think it's a considerable financial question in people's lives and for us as a society. There is a large effective tax burden that has to be borne when people retire during a period where lifespans are getting longer. But you're putting your finger on the deeper question, I think, which is why is it so resonant and what should we do about it? 65, which is kind of a modal focal point of a retirement age, has actually been around for maybe Mm -hmm. 100 years, Mm -hmm. during which time lifespans have gotten a lot longer. There is something kind of incongruous about the fact that the retirement age hasn't changed. And then second, the deeper question is, do people know what they want? Happiness in retirement is a mixed bag, and many people express the desire to have worked longer. Perhaps that's a desire for more income, but it's a very curious question as to what makes people happier at that point in their lives. I'm quite a fan of the U.S. system where it's not a cliff. You can retire at 62, you can delay it up until 70. I think that makes a ton of sense. But I don't know, what do you make of it, Kathleen? I think that you're right that the finance aspects dominate the conversation. It's not at all clear that they dominate the decisions that people are making. Mm. If they were dominating the decisions, we would not be seeing the early retirements. 
because if finance were driving it, you would stay at work. So for every year you stay at work, it's like adding 1% of your earnings to savings over 30 years. So that is not a financial-driven decision that people are making. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are retiring early because they're tired of doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And we are such a work-focused society that you think of retirement as sort of stopping. And human beings aren't animals that are happy when they stop. Right. (laughs) So I think if we started moving the conversation a little away from the monetary aspects to the what is it that you want to do when you retire aspects, I think we could move much closer to thinking about retirement as a generative as opposed to sort of stagnating part of life. So I think that makes a ton of sense to me. The life satisfaction data are interesting. It doesn't move on average, but it basically is two things going on. People are much, much happier with their free time, Mm -hmm. and they're not quite as happy with their income, with their consumption situation. And so then (laughs) taking these two things together, you don't see anything around the decision to retire, but it's a big desire. Just like we have a big desire to be healthier, we have a big desire to be educated. And typically we say, okay, so this is really what people want. What are ways to finance it in a responsible way? Here, we don't really do that. We take the pot of money as given, and it gets us into this strange conversation that the only way the retirement system can evolve is that we retire later and later and later because we're stretching the same dollars over many more years. Right. Not to be the fiscal scold, but look, (laughs) I think it's fantastical to suggest that there's a big pot of resources out there that we have readily available to us that would finance conceivably lots earlier retirement. I just don't think that it's available given the chronic amounts of deficits and the debt that we have, nor do I think it's politically achievable. So you're right to say, Felix, just to be clear, when we talk about advancing retirement ages, it's a benefit cut. Mm -hmm. There's only two solutions. You raise taxes or you cut (laughs) benefits. Like that's it. It's not like raising the retirement age is different. It's just a version of a benefit cut. Could we do other things as well? You bet. In the US, we could uncap the base for all those payroll taxes, which is capped at 160,000. We could make it much more progressive than it currently is. I'd be for that too. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, we're going to have to do a bunch of these things because of the demographic issues that we face. So I like the idea of thinking about retirement creatively, but we got to do things in the system that make it a little bit more sane than it would have been otherwise. One of the really interesting things that it seems we could do is to essentially monetize this range of desires about when to retire. I know a whole lot of people who would prefer not to retire at 70, and yet you have to start taking Social Security at 70. Right. You can imagine that we could move that date back so that you didn't have to start taking it at 70, and people could continue to be employed. I think there's also a really important role for employers to play here. Right. You can imagine scenarios in which employers set up graduated retirement where they're really tapping into the knowledge and skills of some of their longest tenure workers, turning them into sort of mentors as they move out of the organization, instead of you're done, you get a watch or whatever it is, (laughs) and then all of a sudden you have to go out and figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life because you've been working 40, 50, 60 hours a week up till then, and you don't have any time to figure out what to do with the rest of your life. Right. So I think there's a way to tap into 
other sources of revenue by really thinking about all the different ways in which people want to move into retirement. I think that's exactly right. We think about this in a binary way, Kathleen, which is absurd. It's like on or off, and the reality of life is much more complex, and we should be allowing for all kinds of possibilities. But I think the real question that you raised earlier, Kathleen, is the one I'm still stuck with, which is the difficulty is that you're faced at that age with this possibility of having to reinvent yourself. So you've centered your life on work, Mm -hmm. and you then have to reinvent that. Now, maybe you take it down from 100% to 50%, and that helps, but it still leaves this hole from an identity perspective that I think is complicated and problematic. And so the real difficulty seems to me to be making investments when you're 40 and 50 and 30 that allow you to have interests and opportunities that make that last 20 years of your life rich. Well, I think we're in a grand experiment And I think we watch because what is going to happen over the next couple decades is a wave of women retiring from full-time work really for the first time in Social Security history Mm -hmm, at least. mm -hmm, And so completely aside the implications for financial considerations, women by necessity, because we still by and large as a society leave everything outside paid employment to the responsibility <laughs> of women, yeah. women have across their lives continued to generate a broader set of activities. Mm-hmm, women tend mm-hmm. to be more involved with family, even if they don't have children. They tend to be more involved with their siblings, with their parents, with their cousins. They tend to be the social arrangers for their families, so they have different ties to their friends. Right. They're more likely to have volunteered while they've been employed. So I think we're going to learn a lot from women retiring to see the ways in which they take the multiplexity of their lives, which stands in contrast to the way a lot of men, I think, are quite forced to live as sort of focused only on work. Women may move into retirement in a very different way that could teach us all something. What's really interesting already today, you see about 20% of people or so who have retired who then go back, usually in a part-time position, sometimes in the same industry, typically not in the same industry, not for the same company, for exactly the reasons that you discussed. To me, two parts of this conversation are really interesting. The first is just... The emphasis on how do we make the most out of the years that we have after work? And then second, create some sort of flexibility that reflects just the incredibly different circumstances. Some people who get so much meaning, a sense of purpose of their lives that is tied to their professional activity. And you don't want to stop when you're 70, 75, 80, 85, 90, because it's who you are, essentially. And then... There are other people who at the end of their 40s think, oh my God, just get me out of here. Mm. Creating a more flexible system is important in healthcare. Flexibility is important in education. We actually have a lot of experience providing public programs in a way that adjusts to individual circumstances. 
Maybe the most important concern here is to have the conversation mm -hmm. as opposed to having a political conversation that is completely dominated by what's the year during which the trust fund will run out. Right. That is not a way to think and talk about a reasonable retirement system. We want all the possibilities on the table. So, for instance, we could say, let's make immigration much easier. Yeah. That's a way to reduce some of the fiscal pressure. Let's make it easier to combine family and work so that we get higher labor participation rates among women. That's a way to relieve some of the financial pressure. Absolutely. And then we have to talk about the really big ticket items in the budget. Let's say, what's the trade-off between an even stronger military and an opportunity to retire earlier? If these two things are on the table, which one would we prefer? If an even more generous healthcare system versus earlier retirement... What's that trade-off like? Where do we come out? I'm delighted to see that both of you have come to conclude that financial considerations dominate <laughs> Before we end this, I was kind of baiting Kathleen on this gender question. So, Kathleen, we've concluded that women know how to do retirement way better, and yet you have not provided any advice to us men about how to do it well. Well, I have lots of advice, and it starts early. Tell her. Get involved with your families. Get involved with your communities. Leave work at a decent hour so that you can become a well-rounded human being. And then when you get to the point when you have to retire, you'll have some options that you know you can look forward to. Oh my God, who knew there is hope for us? Yeah. <laughs> we just have to follow Kathleen. But just again, Felix, don't get any ideas about retiring. <laughs> You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning, It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. So Kathleen, you wanted to talk about gratitude. What's on your mind? We think of workplaces as transactional places. Mm -hmm. People come yep. to work to get paid. Yep. Employers hire them so that they can do work of more value than they're going to get paid. Managers are working to try to get the most they can out of their employees, to try to set strategies so their organizations can make even more money. Owners invest their time and their ideas and their money into organizations so they can reap the pecuniary benefits of that. And that's how we think about what workplaces are. They're mm -hmm, transactional mm -hmm. places. Yep. But workplaces are also very relational. 
We spend most of our waking life with people who aren't our family and our chosen friends. There are colleagues and our customers. And for the three of us, there are students. Mm-hmm. And that relational aspect of work is really central to why people thrive in organizations. And what research on gratitude has shown pretty clearly is that both feeling grateful and having people tell you that they are grateful to you for what you've done makes people both more productive, so helps the transactional nature of work, and happier Hmm. in the relationships that they have at work. So it feeds both sides of why organizations exist. And yet we don't talk about it very much. We don't talk about the ways in which appreciating one another and quite honestly appreciating what our employers provide, we don't talk about the ways in which that really enhances our lives at work. So I thought have a conversation with both of you about it would be good. The first thing that comes to mind when I think about gratitude in a corporate context is, you know, when you go to these restaurants or sometimes you see it in the entrances of businesses where they have the employee of the month or the employee of the week, I always wonder, does it really make anyone feel good? Do we know whether the institutionalized forms of gratitude. You know how you can sometimes tell in email that there is a footer that is always the same when people (laughs) say warmest or whatever it is, and sometimes it's thank you. Unlike appreciation, which is a somewhat amorphous emotion, so you can appreciate a lot of things, it's not personally directed. Gratitude is inherently relational. Mm -hmm. So you're grateful to someone for something that they've done that's both out of the ordinary Mm -hmm. and thoughtful toward you. So you're not grateful for things that people do every day. Maybe we should be, but you're not grateful for the person who brings you your mail for bringing you your mail because that's their job. But you might be grateful that they bring you the mail and say, it looks like you've got a personal card from somebody today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because that is both out of the necessary for their job. They don't have to pay any attention to how good you feel about getting your mail. And it's thoughtful. Mm -hmm. They thought about what you might want in your Mm -hmm. mail. Mm -hmm. And if you start looking around at work, you can see people all the time are doing things that's sort of extra. Mm-hmm. And what the studies show is when they get thanked for doing that extra work, they're more likely to do more. But you're right that it's got to be real. Mm. While you were talking about this, Kathleen, I was reminded of this amazing scene in Mad Men. Elizabeth Moss is like this young copywriter, and she's working for John Hamm, who's this ad man. And Moss is upset because John Hamm, who is her boss, doesn't really give her any acknowledgement or gratitude for what she's done. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, you know, you never say thank you. And he just responds by saying, that's what the money's for. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the classic scene from Mad Men. (laughs) But I think you're absolutely right. Gratitude and thank yous just seem like such an underappreciated part of the workplace for all the reasons you said. Then the puzzle becomes for me, why is it so infrequently observed and why is it not used more often? In a way, I think of saying thank you and saying sorry as the cheapest social lubricants in the world, and yet we don't do it enough. And so Mm -hmm. there's two theories about this. One theory is 
people don't feel grateful. Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. come to a point in their lives where they just are so either narcissistic or they're thinking about themselves. They just don't feel grateful. Or the second possibility is they somehow view expressing gratitude as a sign of weakness or as a sign of dependence. Yeah. Given the efficacy of gratitude, is the puzzle, why don't we all use it more? Absolutely. So in addition to the two reasons that you cited, it's also that people actually don't think it matters when it really, really does. So that's one piece. Fair enough. I think that's got to be right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The first, that people aren't grateful, is right. And just like any other skill, it takes practice. There are these gratitude exercises where Mm, you do gratitude (laughs) diaries. You spend 10 minutes a day seeing what you're grateful for. And once that muscle gets going, you kind of can't stop. So there is a sense in which you sort of have to open up your eyes. People are amazingly unaware of what's going on around them. (laughs) (laughs) One complication in the corporate context is the moment you know it has all of these positive effects – Things become a little more complicated, but it can be seen as instrumental. I know you're going to feel great, and as a result, you're going to work extra hours and do extra things for me. I share your sense, Felix, that the perceived instrumentalism of this makes you cautious, but it sure feels like it's got to be second or third order. Just the practicing of it in the most basic sense (laughs) is so critical that we shouldn't make it more complicated than it is, which is just the simple act of gratitude is Mm -hmm, deeply mm -hmm. powerful to the recipient and to the person who's giving it. I think that's got to be right. I'm curious, Kathleen, when you looked at it during the pandemic, are there interesting patterns in the private sphere that we wouldn't expect to see in companies? Or does it always roughly work the same? No, it's really different. The things that people are grateful for at home are really much more personal. So Mm -hmm. when your spouse recognizes that you're having a tough day and quietly takes the kids out of the room so that you can have some time to yourself, you're grateful. But you don't need to express that gratitude in the same sort of open and Hmm. public way. You can express that gratitude by doing something reciprocally thoughtful for Mm -hmm. your partner. The piece that we saw that really surprised us is a little bit away from gratitude, but it's how appreciative people were of their spouses as workers. They're like, wow, I never knew I was married to that guy. He's so good to his employees. I listened to him talking to him on the phone, and oh, my gosh, I know this guy has potential now. (laughs) (laughs) And so people really came to appreciate their partners in really different ways because they saw them interacting with people completely out of the home Mm -hmm, context. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's this more sort of broad emotion of appreciation, but it does tie into gratitude. Gratitude, again, really is about this person thinks of me. And at home, that can be much, much deeper. The other thing that we found, and we haven't talked about this sort of downside of it, gratitude can act as sort of relational booster. And that's all we've been talking about here, Mm -hmm, the ways mm -hmm. in which expressing gratitude makes the other person more likely to continue that kind of behavior. It makes you feel good about yourself. But gratitude can also act as a substitute for real change. Mm -hmm. So I'm grateful for the little things that my employer is doing 
during this really difficult time. So I'm not going to ask for what I really need. Oh, And uh-huh. we saw that really over and over, that gratitude can act as a substitute for real change, both in relationships, like in sharing housework and things at home, and also at work. Because I feel I have a better relationship with you, and so I'm not pushing things because we seem to be in a good place. Yeah. Is that the intuition? And because I see that you're already kind of going out of your way to try. So my employer is trying to make life easier for us during the pandemic. They've given us all of the equipment we needed to work from home. You know, the fact that I now have to be on 17 hours a day instead of only 10 hours a day, well, I'm not going to bring that up because I'm grateful that they've made things easier. So it substitutes for a real Hmm. discourse about what would be truly helpful. I think that makes a ton of sense. These are rewards, and so we would maybe expect them to be substitutes on some dimensions. I confess, I was really struck earlier about this personal and private versus professional setting, which is, I think, one of the things that keeps people back from expressing gratitude in the workplace is it feels too personal. Yes. But some people think that they're crossing a line. I think the solution to that, at least that I've observed, is that you really see good leaders pattern models of gratitude in the way they talk. Mm -hmm. So if you are a leader in an organization, one of the greatest things you can do is just pattern the behavior that you want to propagate through that institution. And when I see leaders, every time they talk to the organization, they begin with gratitude. The first thing out of their mouth is, I just want to take this chance to acknowledge X or Y or Z. It is so powerful because it just makes everybody want to do the same thing. Yes. And then you don't have to worry that I'm being excessively personal. Because it's something that the leadership has shown you a way to do. It's interesting that you experience this as so powerful. This does not work for me at all. You view that as disingenuous. Yeah. When you listen to politicians, you can always say when they get to the sentence that they have said a million times. And to my ears, it doesn't sound authentic. Well, it has to be specific. If it's like, I just want to thank all our employees, that doesn't go very far. But if it's a story, I think it can be powerful. You don't buy it, Felix, it sounds like. So I agree the specificity really helps. So say if it's a particular team and they have gone out of their way to do something really amazing. But I was thinking more the all hands and I start with we had another great quarter. I cannot thank you all enough for everything you did. But that misses both key aspects of what gratitude really is. That is neither extra in the sense of that's what you're paying me to do is to bring good outcomes to the organization, nor is it thoughtful and personal. So the leader who stands up and says, thanks for great fourth quarter returns, is not showing gratitude. The leader, in contrast, that stands up and says, thank you so much, Felix, for creating an environment in which the people who are working with you feel like they can really, really do their very best work. You are always there leading. You are always out front. And I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm, We're mm -hmm. all learning a lot from you. That's a totally different thing than thank you so much for (laughs) those fourth quarter. Because one is expected and the other really is extra. Yeah. The other thing that's different here that I find completely fascinating in the data, when you ask people how they want to be thanked, Mm -hmm, one of the least popular forms is to be thanked in a group. Right. Which goes to your example. If it's you and I in a room and we can talk about the extraordinary things that I have done, that feels very different. But 
this being thanked in a group was way at the bottom of ways to thank people. And Kathleen, on this point about expectations, it does give rise to this conundrum a little bit of ratcheting up of expectations. Yes, absolutely. It's so true. So your point is that gratitude is when you go beyond expectations. And yet, if we come to expect that thank you every time I do something, Mm. it has analogs in the parenting space. So how do you get out of that cycle? Yeah, it's absolutely true. So we see this within couples all the time. So if you have a couple that really is sharing all of the household chores and all the responsibilities, the cognitive labor, the child care, the child development, sharing it equally, you're not grateful for that because that's what you've agreed to do and that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it is true that there can be this ratcheting up. At some level, one way to say is then declare victory. If everybody's doing all these wonderful things for everybody else and people are all satisfied with it, maybe you don't need gratitude right. anymore. <laughs> but I don't think most organizations are anywhere close to that. If you get to the point where people are being more generous to one another and so therefore it's not commented on all the time, there are always more things that people can do mm. for one another, both in households and at work. So I'm not afraid that we're going to get to the point where everybody's just doing so much for everyone that no one needs to bother commenting on it anymore. And on that note, I'm thankful for the conversation. You say that every time, Felix. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very grateful for having had the opportunity to spend these after hours with you. Now that was good, Kathleen. <laughs> <laughs> And we have recommendations. What did you bring, Kathleen? My recommendation is a podcast. Oh. So Present Company Accepted, my favorite podcaster, is Ezra Klein. Mm-hmm. And quite a few months ago, he had a podcast on the Sabbath. Not the Sabbath as religious observation, but the Sabbath as a time of rest and community. Mm-hmm. As a focus on mm. engaging not in the productive activities of money-making and work, but rather the life-enhancing activities of rest, of rejuvenation, and really being with others. And it's interesting. He and the author talked a lot about how it's not about should-nots. It's Hmm. about community. It's about practice. And it's about making it festive and fun. And I just thought, Mm. wow, if one day out of every week I could engage fully in rest, in community and fun, just how much that would change my life. Wonderful. That's a great recommendation. It's a fabulous podcast in general. I find his ability to ask interesting questions and then – not only be a sounding board, but engage in dialogue is just absolutely spectacular. Almost every time I listen to him, I learn a lot. I see 15 sides to a particular issue. It's really quite something. It is absolutely spectacular every single episode. And I confess, I've wanted to institute that practice in my life. And it's very hard to have that notion of a Sabbath. And I think it's such a great one. Maybe this will push me into doing it. Highly recommend. Felix, what do you got? I wanted to recommend an AI-related TikTok account. Hmm. We're talking about artificial intelligence all the time. We're now all trying chat GPT and what it's doing and what it's not doing. 
And frankly, it's quite hard to just keep up with everything that is happening. Even understanding the different flavors of artificial intelligence and what they can do and what they mean. So I wanted to recommend Rachel Wood's TikTok account. Mm -hmm. It's called the AI Exchange. Mm -hmm. She does two things really, really well. She's incredibly current. So if something big happens anywhere in AI landscape, the next day she'll be on TikTok and she'll talk about it. And then also, unlike most journalistic accounts, it gets not super, super deep, but it gets technical. So you begin to understand why a particular approach to AI may be compatible, say, with Google Search or may not be compatible with Google Search. And this combination is really quite fantastic. She's a data scientist herself. I think she used to work at Meta. So you really see how she's thinking about the connection between AI and the business world. And if you want to spend a couple of minutes every day learning a little bit about the new world of AI, that's a really great gateway to that world. That sounds great. Wow. Very good. A new TikTok account. Before it all goes away. Who knows? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you have for us, Mihir? Well, so a little bit in the spirit of gratitude, I would like to recommend an academic article from the Journal of Political Economy from last year. Which sounds like a weird thing to do. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> We're waiting. <laughs> but it is both because it's just a spectacular example of research, but I think it goes to our gratitude conversation. So the title of it is Good Reverberations, Teacher Influence in Music Composition Since 1450. Mm. So what this author does, Carol Borowicki, is study musical composers and teachers over the last five centuries. The amount of research embedded in this article is staggering. <laughs> they show basically that teachers have a lasting impact shaping the style and the ideas of their students. Hmm. It's just a spectacular piece of research, but it is also Teacher Appreciation Week right around now. And I just thought I would leave you with the last paragraph of the article, which is, some artists and scientists commit their lives to having lasting influence and becoming memorable. In doing so, they often prioritize artistic output or academic publications that are visible to their peers, critics, and employers. However, it may often be via teaching that the greatest influence occurs when the teacher lives on as a reverberation in the work of the student. So send that to maybe a teacher that has had a great influence on you as a sign of gratitude. Wonderful. That's Love fantastic. that. Fantastic. I need to read that. And with this, we're at the end. I am specifically grateful to our listeners for listening <laughs> through the end of the episode. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective. <laughs> 